What's your name? Alonzo Carter. What is your current job and how long have you held it? I am the current running back coach and recruiting coordinator at San Jose State University. This would be my third season coming up. What is your connection to the legendary rapper MC Hammer? I'm his former background dancer. I was the lead posse member. I was with him five years, and it was a great experience. You might be wondering, how on earth does somebody go from dancer and choreographer for MC Hammer to a coach at a Division I university and the recruiting coordinator. Well, you're in for a treat because today on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we meet with a very unique individual, someone who I've known for a long time. First time I've seen him in about 20 years or so. It is the real Coach Carter. Alonzo Carter is our guest next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Actually, I might have to call this life around the laces because you are my first non-baseball guest. So I hope you feel honored because this is my first primary football guest. I feel it's great to see you. It's good to see you. Okay, so I want to let our audience know that before I got into broadcasting, I worked for the Oakland Tribune for 10 years. And 97, 98, 99, early 2000, I covered high school sports for the Oakland Tribune. And if you're covering high school sports (laughs) within the last 20 years, you interviewed and talked to Alonzo Carter a lot because Alonzo was involved in everything. And so I got to know him during those three and a half years, but I never knew about your background. and And I feel like, man, what kind of reporter was I that I never knew about your background. Wow. I never talked about it. I mean, I wanted to be known as a coach, not the guy that used to dance for MC Hammer. So it was important for me to be the best football coach and best mentor that I could be at that time. I'm going to rewind in a moment, but before I do that, so you were trying to, you know, you wanted to be the best mentor and football coach, and I would say maybe thousands of people knew about your background, and then about 18 months ago, this video goes viral of you dancing to You Can't Touch This, and 14, 15, 16 million people have now seen it. How does that change your life when suddenly millions know about what you used to do? It's great because, you know, it was spontaneous. It wasn't planned. Well, Coach Brennan... And Cam Rafford, which is our video guy, they were all part of this because we had a live DJ. DJ Brother Reese always used to come to our practices and play live music. So to play music was normal, but that was the first time they queued up You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. And I'm looking, shaking my head. If you watch the video, I'm thinking it's Super Freak, Rick James, Uh the original. And they was like, nah, I said, that's... That's you can't touch this. And I look up. He got this big Kool-Aid smile on his face, and he points and calls me out to dance. And at first I say no. And you see the guys pushing me and urging me on, and I'm just like, all right, let me give you a little taste. So it was spontaneous. It was fun. 
had no idea it was being filmed. Had no idea it was going to get posted. I got home the next night. It was on Channel 2 News. Uh, and it started off real small. The next thing I know, it's on Instagram. It had a half a million views. And then a week later, it just went viral. And it, it just blew up. And then it did it twice. Yeah. And then you're on Ellen. Yes. They're on Ellen DeGeneres show. That's That was crazy. Because <laughs> it went viral first in the spring when it first came out in April. And then it, like you say, 10, 15 million views. Then it died off. Then when football season started in August, it came out again. And that's when the Ellen piece, because my wife was telling me, hey, I don't want people knowing you as some dancer. You're a football coach. I'm like, well, I'm not doing any interviews. I don't want to talk about it. Only person I would talk to this about is I'm on Ellen. <laughs> so Cam Raffer made a conscious effort of contacting Ellen's show and sending the video. And we was getting response. So we were doing interviews to try to get on the show so the actual video footage that you see we're thinking we're interviewing with one of the producers to get on the show come to find out it was the show so that surprise moment was a really surprise moment and it was great just being able to do that what did your kids think what did they know and what did they think especially once the world starts realizing what dad used to do well i mean for them it was fun because i was already that person that they felt connected to uh, me being from the inner city and wanting to go to college and, and live your dream by playing sports while being from Oakland and, and not having a male role model or a father figure in my life, that was my biggest connection to them, even as a coach, being a person that they can come talk to about anything and just knowing my past and being real humble and not talking about it, it kind of made them feel like, wow, we didn't know you were on the Grammys and and Oprah, you've done all these different things that you never talk about. I said, well, I'm not here to uh, promote myself. I'm here to help you and help use me as an example how to change your life through athletics. And I think that was the biggest thing that made them respect me even more. And we had even more fun with it after that. All right, so let's rewind to a young Alonzo Carter, a young Zoe growing up in Oakland. What sport? I know you played football. What other sports did you play? I, I was football and track. I was a diehard football you know, I love football. I grew up. I was a big, big O.J. Simpson, Walter Payton, Tony Corsett guy. I love that. And then my, one of my other idols was Ronnie Lott. You know, just growing up, I love watching football. So once I got to high school, I played football and I ran track. Um, Deion Sanders was my favorite. I love Deion Sanders. So when you have all those people that you look up to, you, you try to find your niche. But my senior year in high school, I ended up having my son. Alonzo Carter is second, which he's 33-year-old, and he has his college degree now from the same school I went to, which was Cal State Hayward. No, it's called Cal State East Bay. But I had him my senior year, so I didn't get a scholarship. I applied to San Jose State and Cal State Hayward because I wanted to stay local and raise my son and still go to college. So I was a walk-on. I uh, went out for football, and I played football and ran track my first two years. And my third year, I ended up being a starter. At Cal State Hayward, and then that summer, thought I was going on summer tour with MC Hammer and coming back for my senior year, but that summer tour turned into a five-year career. Okay, so I'm going to pause for a moment, and uh, so this is the story that I know of of MC Hammer, and if I'm wrong, jump in, and if you've got other details, uh, let me know. Uh, but his name is Stanley Burrell, and yes. he hung around the Oakland Coliseum on a regular basis, Yes, and I've heard various versions of why he was hired, but he was hired initially as a bat boy, mm -hmm. and the reason why he got the nickname Hammer is because Reggie Jackson thought that he looked like a young Hank Aaron, yes. and Hank Aaron's nickname was Hammer and Hank. Yes. 
and then his role increased. And this is when he was a teenager. His role increased so that he became Charlie Finley, the very eccentric former owner of the Oakland A's, called him my executive vice president, gave him like a hat that said executive VP. I've read stories where Raleigh Fingers and Reggie Jackson said, look out, here comes the informant. You got to be quiet because this is the eyes and ears of Charlie Finley, who's back in Chicago. Okay. I've heard stories that that Hammer would be on the phone to Charlie Finley because if you're in Chicago, you can't listen or watch the ace, and so Hammer would tell him what's going on, and in between the action would, would rhyme and would start with his, with his MC talents while he was wow. on the phone back to Chicago. I've read that Hammer had a tryout with the San Francisco Giants. He did not get signed. He did not get drafted. That he went to the Navy, mm-hmm. and then he came out, and that's when he started his musical career. Yes. And there's two outfielders from the Oakland A's, Mike Davis and Dwayne Murphy, who gave him $20,000 apiece as a loan, and that's what got him going. Well, yeah, Hammer is a big sports fanatic. You know, baseball was his first love. Uh, he loved all sports. You know, he was a good boxer, too. You know, he he loved sports. That was one of the things he did, and... That story is true, how he got his start. And um, he did start Busted Records with the help of Mike Davis and Dwayne Murphy. And that pretty much was selling records out of his trunk of his car, you know, locally. We knew about him locally because my connection to him was he went to McClymouth High School also. But he's older than me, so we weren't there at the same time. So when his first song came out, Ringham, when he was just on his local label, that was like a club bumper. Everybody knew it from the clubs, and then he started performing locally. He used to wear all the troop gear and the gazelle glasses, and you would see him, and you'd be like, man. I seen him in concert. It was like, wow, I wish I could be that guy. I wanted to be part of his posse because he had Oaktown 357 and Ace and Long Mixer and DJ Redeem. He had two DJs, and uh, it was just a show. It was just where he was way ahead of his time. And I remember being in awe of him on stage and hoping that I could be on stage with him. So to get in that, it was like living. What was the Oakland music scene like back then? It was big. I mean, uh, hip hop was growing, but it was primarily East Coast. But you and know, we're talking mid '80s, yeah, we're talking mid to late '80s yeah, right I, now. I graduated in 1986, and I remember going to the Palladium in San Francisco. That was our spot. Stayed up in the six in the morning, and we would dance all night. And Hammer song would come on, and it would just blow the club up. So we're talking back then. You got N.W.A. was fresh out, Too Short, uh, Sir Mix a Lot, and then you know M.C. Hammer had just became different because everybody was kind of into that gangster rap kind of a mix so when he came out with his music other than the east coast artists no one had ever heard that type of music that party and style and no one had ever seen a stage show like him i mean he he put on a show and he blew everybody away and all the west coast artists and loved hammer ice t nwa he was on he was close with all those guys because they did a lot of west coast touring together so they knew he was gonna blow up you know but People on the East Coast just were blown away with just his stage show and his presence. And what what was your background dancing? Was this just what you did for fun in the living room and out at parties, or was there any practice? Or, or like, how did you become such a good dancer? Zero professionalism, zero training. <laughs> uh, me and my mom were just talking about this when I was a younger kid. My grandmother would have me and my brothers dance and do the robot in front of all her friends and get paid money for doing it and me and my mom were just talking about last week how my, we were just reminiscing on how my grandmother would have us dancing so when I went to high school 
I was a huge James Brown guy. I loved James Brown. And, and I used to try to imitate him and do his stuff. And even I was in a talent show my junior year. We had a putting on the hits, which was a lip sync contest. And we was Morris Day in the time. Yeah. And believe it or not, I was Morris Day. I don't know how the dark skin guy got <laughs> to play the light skin complexion Morris Day. But I was him because I had the best stage presence. And we won, me and a couple of my uh, closest friends. So I always had stage presence and I love to dance but it wasn't nothing that I thought would be a career I was that lunchtime battle you mm-hmm. know you want to battle okay you'll go get the best dancer we're gonna go get Zoe yeah and we would just battle it out but it was big on the scene in Oakland everyone loved hip-hop music yeah so that, that's what I was also curious about when it comes to like the pecking order of you know let's face it Oakland's a tough place and you gotta have a lot of swagger growing up in Oakland like where is it how cool is it to be a good dancer and to know how to dance? Like, where where does that fit in? It made you somebody. I mean, uh, even at a tough school like McClyman's in the mid-'80s, you're talking the toughest of the toughest. But we had lunchtime dance. That's, that's the way of I- identifying who you were. At lunchtime, we would have dances. And at sometimes on Friday evenings, we would have dances. And that's when everyone got along. That's how you got all the existing neighborhoods. You had the Lower Bottoms, you had Acorns, you had Ghost Town. You had all these different neighborhood guys, cool guys, tough guys. But when they had to dance, we all together. We all having a good time. And that was the one thing that music did. It made you come together. Even MC Hammer, originally he's from East Oakland off High Street, but he went to McClyman. So he's affiliated with all these East Oakland guys, but he also goes to school in West Oakland. So when you hear that music, it's universal. It brought us it brought Oakland together. And even rappers like Too Short, which is from East Oakland and you just had that respect, and he was like, hey, that guy right there, he's representing Oakland as a whole. So music was universal, and it kind of made you feel, it stood you out as a person. It made him stand above the the, the guy on the street corner. The toughest guy on the street corner would throw on the MC Hammer tape, and you find him dancing right. to his music because he just, music was universal. And it was a tape. It wasn't a CD. Tape. <laughs> it, was, yes, tape. It, it wasn't earbuds. No. It wasn't digitally CDs downloaded. Later on. <laughs> it was a tape <laughs> that was put in. All right, so let's fast forward. It is the summer before your senior year, and tell us about how you found out that Hammer's looking for dancers and take over the story from there. Well, I'm a... Junior in college, uh, like I said, MC Hammer was still local. Me and my best friend, Michael Sessions, we wanted to go to the audition for the Let's Get It Started video, which was shot downtown Oakland at Sweet Jimmy's uh, Club. And we knew Lloyd Johnson, which was his lead security person, and then Joe Mack which was also part of the posse, they told us about it, but we was like, well, how can we get in and get in the video? And they was like, well, once you get in, you're on your own. You know, So we got in there. And we had on you. We had on the biker tights, and we had our own stuff. We had a group back then. We called it Club Nuho, which was a version of Club Nouveau. But we had our own names, like the party. Like he was Heavy Ho, I was King Ho, and we have other guys: Mighty Ho, Tally Ho, Frosty Ho. We had all these different names because we didn't want to pledge a fraternity back then because I didn't understand hazing at. As a freshman and sophomore in college, I was like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. I see guys pledging. It was like, man, you need to respect me. So that's what we came up with, our own social club, Club Nuho, and we had respect me on the back of our hats. So we would go to fraternities, dances at Cal State Hayward, and dance against these guys. So we were mixing hip-hop dance with fraternity stepping. 
but we were doing it to MC Hammer's music. So we knew once we got to that club, everyone in there was going to be imitating Hammer. Nobody was going to be doing what we were doing. So if you go back on YouTube and look at the original Let's Get It Started video, you'll see me and as a heavy set guy, we got on white shirt, red hat, black biker tights. We were cued into the video. Hammer gave us a audition during the break of the video. He was there and he was like, he said, what's your name? He told my friend, he said, Heavy Ho. And he just started laughing. You <laughs> know, like, oh, well, who you here with? And he pointed to me, King Ho. He said, okay, we got Heavy Ho and King Ho. Uh, what y'all, we want to get in the video. So he made this big circle and he plays Radio and Joe Cooley. And we started dancing to him. The crowd's going crazy. So he's like, okay, stop. I want you guys to do that again, but we're going to film it this time. But he was playing, let's get it started. And that's how we got our start. And that was crazy because from there, he invited me. Now, fast forward a few months later, he signs his deal with Capitol Records. He shoots Turn This Mother Out video in L.A. I get, use my American Express and I got through college. You know, Did you get a free towel or a free backpack for something? Getting on the bus and flying on Greyhound. I mean, driving on Greyhound. Southwest was big back then. You used to have to check in things. Those cards, yeah. Yep. So I was going back and forth because my friend Alvin Howard, which we call Mighty Ho, he went to Cal State Northridge. So he would keep me in tune what was going on in Los Angeles every time Hammer would come down there. So on weekends, I would just get on the bus and go to L.A. and show up at the video and he said oh i'm with mighty ho this time oh you got another one with you so it was just it was funny to him but at the same time he's seen us constantly popping up at all these shows be it locally or in la and he's like okay well what are you guys doing i'm like i was a junior at cal state hayward alvin was a sophomore at northridge and we ended up meeting steve and sydney they were from los angeles we ended up calling them xho and loho which he was a member of Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. So it kind of was a perfect blend. We blended our groups together. We popped up at Anaheim at the Circle Star Theater. Hammer had a show with Tony, 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 mm-hmm. which is another Oakland group. And we had practiced this whole routine. And we sat there for four hours waiting on him to show up. And he was like, y'all again? I'm like, yeah, but this time I got two more with me. <laughs> so he was like, okay. So he gave us a shot on stage, and we came out stepping in like a, a line, like a, we call it like a train, and the crowd went crazy. We blew, we was blowing. We had on Cal State Hayward striped shirts with black whistles and patent leather shoes with white gloves, and we were doing a step routine. And it was clearly choreographed by us, but it was to his music, and the crowd just ate it up. And he was like, Tony, Tony, Tony came up to us afterwards and said, hey, where are you guys from? We told him we were L.A. He said, we would like for y'all to be in our video, and before we can respond... He's like, these my these my dancers. And we was like, oh, we are? And Hammer was like, yeah, they're going to be with me. So if you want them to dance, you got to come through me. So he told us to go back to school because this is spring of 89. And I'll pick you guys up for the summer. And y'all going on tour with me. Now, of course, he was like, really? This is April-ish, May. And right around that time, 357, his other group had a video coming out. And Ace Juice had a video coming out. He had us choreograph songs for them. Their two first two videos. Uh, and next thing you know, we went on summer tour with MC Hammer. And we choreographed the song. They put me in a mix, which ended up coming out in July on Arsenio Hall. And the rest was history. 
Arse- isn't that where you can't touch this first debuted? Was Arsenio Hall? Well, no. If you remember, going back to you can't touch this, there's a story behind this that a lot of people don't know. You're getting some privileged information here. If you go back and look at the Please Hammer Don't Hurt a movie, you can't touch this. It's not in that movie. You had That's Why We Pray, Oh, It Comes to Hammer. Dance Machine was the climax routine in the movie. At the end, he redid Michael Jackson's Dance Machine, but it was a rap version, and that was supposed to be the big hit. Well, on the flip side of one of his singles, the radio fell in love with You Can't Touch This. Well, we hadn't even done a video for You Can't Touch This. So, we had the radio start playing You Can't Touch This. Next thing you know, Hammer's like, okay, scrap the movie. The movie, which went platinum, had five songs on it. Didn't include You Can't Touch This. So, we had to go back. We got flew over to San Well, not flew. We drove over to San Francisco. And that's why, if you look, uh, what a heavy hell has on the San Francisco 49ers shirt. We got on Oakland. We got on Giants and A's gear. It was kind of a random freestyle put together last minute video thing and if you look at the video real close you see the four guys dancing together then you see the four girls dancing together you only see hammer doing a lot of solo stuff kind of mimicking and watching us dance jumping on and off the stage and a lot of solo pieces because we put that video together within less than a week as far as the choreography for that song and it just blew up and um that song became his biggest hit, and that video probably was the funnest video we did because we had to put it together in a week, and it, it able to hammer really the freestyle, and the biggest thing on the video was the hooks, which was the, the break it down part, which mm-hmm. was the Chinese typewriter and all those things. But if you really go back and watch that video, you see Hammer dancing a lot by himself, and kind of there's a stage where you see the girls in the back and, and us in the back but you never see him dancing with us you see him kind of freestyling ad-libbing they edited it up a yeah. lot but he never danced with us because we made the routine up like a week before <laughs> the video so it was really fun man and we had a good chance and that's what really blew our group up and made us who we were because we were at the beginning stages of choreographing some stuff that hadn't been seen. The type of dance stuff we were doing, no one had ever seen that. So you go on tour. But before you go on tour, you have to decide, am I going to pause college or am I going to go on tour, right? It was tough because we go on tour for the summer. I'm done. Tour ended right around August. Supposed to report the second week of August to go back to football for my senior year. And I had to make a decision. Do I go back and play my senior year of football or we did so well hammer said i want you guys to come on the second leg of our tour which was to please hammer don't hurt them because we we made the entire album hammer had a studio bus on tour so while he was making the album for please hammer don't hurt them we were doing like background parts and putting skeleton routines together this on the bus this is on the bus he had a tour bus and a studio on the bus that followed us that whole summer so he did 95 percent of his album on tour and then he did the the mastered it once we Mm -hmm. got back but we were now taking the the tapes and putting the skeletons to each one of those songs as far as the choreography together for the movie. Remember I told you it was a movie. Yeah. Four of the five songs were up-tempo songs. You can't touch this one, one of them. So we were in the process of getting ready for the next tour. So I had to make a decision. Do I go back to school or do I take this opportunity to travel and 
now prepare for another tour, which went for another five or six months. So it was just like I gave up my senior year in high school, I mean in college, to pursue my dancing career. And luckily, through the blessings of God, I ended up coming back. Here he is 20-some years later and finishing and going back and getting my degree. But it was it was tough because it was a part of my life that I don't regret doing it. But it was a big decision that I had to make because I was... Education is the key for life for me. And that's the opportunity of a lifetime. And the yes. experiences that you, that you had, I, I can only imagine how much fun it was, but also how how hard the work was. If you're creating more music while on tour, it's not like mm-hmm. it's just, you know, partying nonstop. I mean, you get... No, we took it as a job. And I think that's, to this day, man, MC Hammer have a friendship that uh, I think is a special bond because we were... Especially myself. I was a college student. So I wasn't just a guy off the streets trying to chase a dollar, trying to just be in the entertainment business. I just went on tour for the summer to to dance. Yeah. Now this becomes a career. Now you're around other professional athletes. I met Deion Sanders and his peak. People that I emulated. People that I was like, whoa, I want to be him. Well, I met Deion Sanders. I met Emmitt Smith. Derek Thomas, you meet Jerry Rice. So you see all these people, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, you meet all these, Magic Johnson, you meet all these people that you're like, wow, that's so-and-so. Here they are, they they love Hammer. They all at the show. They love what we do. They said, the, they used to come on stage and dance for one song, which was You Can't Touch This, and be wiped out. Wiped out. We would dance for an hour and a half. And so a lot of people looked at us like the conditioning and the preparation that you guys did to prepare for this tour had to be serious, which it was because my track and football background, that's when Hammer let me be kind of in charge of the off-season strength and conditioning. Yeah, I was going to ask, who's the coach of the dancers? There was no coach per se. It was him. I mean, Hammer had a work ethic second to none. There's nobody that I can see because to be able to rap and dance, it's tough. Because we did it just dancing. So when you're trying to rap and dance, it's tough. So him knowing that I had a track and football background, he allowed me to put together the off-season training. And I put together stuff as though I was still running track or I was about to play football. And the other guys in my group all had athletic backgrounds as well. So we kind of was the catalyst to putting together all the weight stuff. We would run four miles a day. Uh, we would get up six days a week. Only days we had off was Sunday. So we treated it as though we were still playing. Mm-hmm. And I was in charge of that. I was the person that would weigh in the, 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 the girls or the guys each week. Either you had to lose weight or gain weight, all depending on your body type. I was going to have to lose. But so we kind of, I was that was my job because he was so busy doing interviews and doing different stuff. He put me in charge of making sure everyone was at the studio on time and make sure that they was doing their workouts. You went to the Grammys. You're on Arsenio yes. Hall. You're on Oprah Winfrey. Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a ride. It was a great ride. It was a lot of hard work, though. It was it was a blessing. Uh, to me, he changed my life because at that time, I was my, my family was struggling. Like I said, I was a teenage dad myself. So here I am. I viewed it as a job and a blessing because he enabled me to take care of my family. He enabled me to get my family out of a real extreme situation my mother was struggling with a drug addiction so i was able to put her through rehab my little brother had been incarcerated 
So I was able to kind of write him and send him pictures and keep him inspired. And like I said, me being a 21-year-old father myself, I was able to provide for my son. So to me, that was a blessing. When Hammer came into my life, to me, that was God's way of saying, you've helped so many people. Now let me help you help yourself to help your family. So I just looked at, I always had the respect, and I didn't never take it for granted. And I took it as a job, and I took it very serious, which to me led to me being a coach. Yeah. Because it was, they're the same. They're one and the same to me. How long did you think that you were going to be on this ride with Hammer? Because it ended up lasting, what, five years? About four and a half, five okay. years. How long I, did you think it was going to last? Originally, I just wanted to do it for the summer. But it's funny because after the second tour, I remember in 1991, we uh, did the Grammys. That was our last performance with MC Hammer. We had a group. We had our own group that he had signed us to a record deal under his label. And I was like, at some point, this has to end. Because if you listen to music, what you like three years ago, even right now, think back what music you liked three to four years ago. It's different. So I knew things were going to change. And I always viewed it as the extended summer vacation. So I always was in the back of my mind preparing myself to go back to school. Mm -hmm. At some point, I have to go back to school. This ride is not going to last forever. Uh, it enabled me to take care of my family, but I knew it was going to end. The how it was going to end, you never knew. But in the back of my mind, I always felt like it was my, it was going to be my duty and my loyalty to go back to finish my education. I had no idea I would get into coaching, which was me just going back to my high school and wanting to give back. But that part of me, all, I was always braced for it. So didn't know how it was going to happen and exactly when, but I always braced myself. Every tour or every show was just an extension of a vacation, and I way overdue. Yeah, I want to start talking about your coaching in a moment, but I do have at least one more question. Yes. There's been lots of documentaries and stories about how Hammer rose from being poor to being super rich and then bankruptcy. Speak to how many people's lives he changed because his generosity might have got him in trouble financially and his spending but the number of lives that he changed and the impact that he had i mean his impact just on people's lives it, it, it's not even enough that i could say in words because i've seen it you know i've seen people that barely had high school diplomas some of them didn't have that you know some of these people were put into in the entertainment business, where it's, you have to be a professional, I don't care if he was being a manager or even being a security person, somebody that he gave work that normally wouldn't have work. He gave them an opportunity to travel the world and see things they never would have seen. He gave back so much to the community. He had numerous t-ball and youth baseball teams that he sponsored and paid for everything out of his pocket that he never wanted to get credit for because that's not why he did it he donated to high school he was so generous with his just volunteering giving stuff back but he never got the credit to me he should have deserved because people view he was ahead of his time because People seen the Taco Bell, the Pepsi. They seen all these different commercials. And at that time, hip-hop artists wasn't as commercial. Well, now you look up. I just watched Cardi B do a Pepsi commercial. And all. So Hammer did Pepsi back then. Only person doing Pepsi back then was Michael Jackson. Yeah. So he was just so ahead of his time with a starting his own label. Busted Records. Well, now you got Bad Boy. And you had Death Row. You had all these different things that started because Hammer was just... He, his vision and his foresight 
was way ahead of himself, and he wanted to bring people with him. He didn't want to just take the ride by himself. Yeah. And the, the, the bankruptcy part is a little exaggerated because a lot of people don't know what that was stemmed from. A lot of that stemmed from different people trying to sue him and get money out of him. So it was like, hey, well, I ain't got it. You know, so you file for bankruptcy <laughs> to protect what you do have. Uh-huh. And some of the spending, I think, you know, it was a little exaggerated. But he did some things that I think that a person in his position would just live in a, live in a lifestyle. You know, he owned horses. I mean, he had all kind of stuff that he was doing. And he took care of us. I, I never complain if i went to him and needed something from my family which is the only time i would ask for anything extra he would do it so i just i just feel bad when i hear people use him as the the model of blowing your money or messing things up because that wasn't the case like you say the generosity was a factor in it because he wanted to help so many people but i think people need to focus on more what he did and the impact he made on the entire entertainment business everyone now has an independent label that's now uh bad boy slash um columbia records whoever that is hammer was the first one to have busted records slash capital you know he started something he gave that blueprint death row you know slash um I think we'll take it sponsored by, uh, start with an I, I can't remember, but anyway, he gave the blueprint of how to be independent and in the same time be sponsored by a major, but know how to dictate and control and be the CEO of your own business. Now, when you're the first one doing it, that's going to be mistakes. There's going to be some things that you wish you can do better, but all these people from Jay-Z to Puff Daddy, all these people that you're seeing now. To me, they owe homage to MC Hammer, E-40, all the, which he's close with all these people. So these people, I remember on tour with Jodeci, Puff Daddy was <laughs> the tour manager. He was, tour manager. He was carrying towels and stuff. Puff Daddy. I see. He was. We were on tour with Jodeci. So to see him become the 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 mogul that he is, I mean, he's he's worldwide. Well, before that. You know, he was backstage with MC Hammer, you know, wishing he could be on stage. So Hammer kind of laid a foundation that I think no one will ever give him the credit that he deserved for. But he took care of a lot of people, and I'm blessed to be one of them. So that ride is over, and you're back in Oakland, and you go back to your high school, McClyman's High School. When did you realize that coaching was something that you wanted to do and could do? To be honest, I don't never give him credit, so I got to give him credit. Lloyd Johnson, which was Hammer's lead security at the time, and he's also he's the one always when you see Steph Curry, the big guy that always walking with him. That's Lloyd Johnson. Okay, that's Hammer's lead security at the time. He's the one who used to carry Hammer on his shoulders during turn his mother out for the shows. He was coaching at his alma mater, which was Fremont High School, mm-hmm. and he was the JV head JV football coach. So we're on tour. And he's asking me football questions and plays. And I'm like, how are you asking me these questions? You're the head coach. Yeah, I'm the head coach. I'm going to be coaching football when we get back. And so right then and there, it clicked on me. If this guy, which is a friend of mine, mm-hmm. is asking me questions about coaching, and he's the head football coach, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So when I get back home, my best friend, Michael Peters, ironically, uh, with the little – snotty nose running around crying Marcus Peters <laughs> on the basketball court his dad is coaching junior varsity football 
at McClymus. So I come back and I come to see him and I see, hey, man, you coaching now? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, you coaching, Lloyd's coaching. So I got the idea of coaching from being around Michael Peters, which ironically is the head coach there now. And I just wanted Marcus' dad, which is Michael, was the offensive coordinator for the junior varsity. I volunteered and was the defensive coordinator for the junior varsity football team. So I started off just wanting to volunteer and give back while I was still visually on TV. We had just did an HBO special with James Brown. And that's when I see how they they did it at Lake uh, uh, Scottish Rite Temple mm-hmm. by Lake Merritt. And they filmed it, and it hadn't aired yet. So once they aired it, people was like, hey, didn't didn't I just see you on <laughs> TV with James Brown with MC Hammer? Mode? Yeah. What you doing, coaching? So I wanted to take that, that, that light that was shined on me because I felt like Hammer, as much as he did, never got credit for it for being a community guy, for going back to his own community and giving back, I wanted to be the person that represented him and his posse or his organization that I'm in the the root. I'm right in West Oakland. I'm in the root of it, giving back, volunteering. I get paid a dollar to coach. And after a while, I remember this harsh reality of once the tour and stuff ended, I had to fill out a resume. So here you got three years of college. Then you got four years of being with MC Hammer. So that's seven years of your life. So when you put out a resume, I'm like, whoa, I can't put dancer as a point of reference of what I've done. So I really looked like I hadn't been doing that for seven years. So it kind of was a humbling part of me going, what am I going to do for a job? So I I went to my uh, Glenessa Irving, which was my godmother. She owned a group home. And she's like, hey, I would love to hire you. You'd be great for working with the kids. Well, either you have to have a college degree or a level of experience to get paid a certain amount of dollars for working at this group home. Well, I had zero experience. So I went to start coaching just to make me experience to put on my resume to get hired at her group home. And that's what really started me into coaching. And once I started, I remember coaching track before Mm -hmm. I coached football. And they were like, hey. Ain't that that dude that used to dance with Hammer? And I was looking around like, who are they talking about? I'm like, you. So I just got tired of being the guy that used to dance with MC Hammer. So I wanted to really get into coaching. If I'm going to coach, I'm going to be the best. And that's when kind of around the time you knew me. Yeah. I wanted to really dive into that thing, dive into that world. And, and at that time, Skyline was the king of the hill. Coach mm-hmm. Beam had did a great job at that. And I was like, well, how can I get McClymouth like that? And the other thing that I remember, and Eric Doctor was writing high school sports before me, and then Eric left, mm-hmm. and now he's a big shot at Amazon. Shout out to Eric, wow. who I know wants to say hello. I wow, mean, he's a, my man. He's Eric. a, he's a big-time big shot at Amazon oh. up in Seattle. I actually saw him last summer. That's great. <laughs> uh, and I know he sends his best. He'll appreciate the shout-out because I know he's going to listen. Um, but I remember Eric writing about and me writing about is how you get to Oakland and you realize, wait, there's all of these great athletes, mm-hmm. but n- so few of them are going to college, and yes. why not? And you had to learn the game. You had to yes. learn the system of yes. how to get them. And I'm wondering how much being with MC Hammer, where performance means so much, how you were able to kind of say, okay, I need to be able to, to sh- put on a performance for these kids to get them college opportunities. Well, one thing I learned from being with MC Hammer, he taught us it's always about your brand. It's always about perception. You know, sometimes perception is not reality, but 
I wanted people because at the, the time, Oakland sports. Period. I mean, it's a lot of greats came out of Oakland sports. And then when you're talking McClymouth High School, you're talking the pinnacle. You're talking Bill Russell, Frank Robinson. You know, you're talking Jim Hines and Paul Silas. I mean, I just felt like McClymouth's nickname is the School of Champions. Well, we have this persona as far as being a championship program, but the players were not getting the scholarships out of the school like I felt they should be because we were just as good as the players at De La Salle High School, Skyline High School, Pittsburgh High School. All these other schools were getting player scholarships, and I was wondering, why not us? So me and Michael Peters at the time, we took it to a different level because – Ralph Bellany was the head coach, but he kind of said, hey, I'm going to be the head coach because he was our coach in high school, but I'm going to let you two young guys do what y'all do. Mm -hmm. And I took it to a whole different level because I wanted to be not just a coach. I wanted to be more of a mentor and even a father figure because that goes back to me not having a father. So I said I could take a kid. I wanted to learn how to break down transcripts and make them understand the NCAA uh, clearinghouse qualifications and getting accepted because that was what was missing. They were having grades. They were good students, but no one understood the lingo of the clearinghouse because to me, the clearinghouse was a game changer. Back then, it was you needed 12 core courses. Then it went to 13. Then it went to 14. Now it's currently at 16. So I just didn't, I felt like the only person that understood that was John Beam at the time. Because I was wondering why everyone always going up to Skyline and Coach Mike Bellotti which was the head coach at Oregon then, he flat out told me. He said, hey, if you want to get your stuff going, you need to get this handled. And Tim Skipper, which was the running back coach at Fresno State when um, Pat Hill got hired, came to my school. And him and Kwame Dixon, which was a DB coach in northern Arizona, those were the first two coaches that taught me how to break down a transcript. And Tim Skipper, I'm sorry, Tim is his brother, Kelly Skipper, that's coach with the Raiders. He's with the Buffalo Bills right now. Kelly Skipper, Tim Skipper at UNLV, I got to beat him. But <laughs> Kelly Skipper taught me how to break down a transcript. He says, Zoe, if you can do this, you have every school in the country recruiting out McClymouth High School. This was in 1996. And he taught me how to break down a transcript. And I took the, the course sheet, and I remember putting the McClymouth logo on it and created academic profiles. and So I created, like, portfolios so when a college coach would come in, I would have your transcript. I would have a course sheet. I would have it already broke down, SAT score. I, would have, I was a one-stop shop. So if I'm going to a counselor that don't know themselves versus me taking those five or ten minutes to take it to a counselor, you take them five or ten minutes and get to talk to me and get to know me personally. And I just think that was the change. Uh, Dante Marsh and Devon Banks were two of the young mm -hmm. men that signed with Fresno State. I remember they got an entire secondary one year coming yeah, out of I mean, it, it, it was huge, man. Uh, uh, Limbrick was at uh, Skyline. So all those guys went to Fresno State. So that was my first big class. But it started the year before that. Hassani White I remember him. signed with Penn. And I remember people saying, oh, you got a guy going to Penn State. I said, no, he's going to Penn Ivy League, out of McClymouth High School, engineering degree, which he ended up finishing there. So that kind of gave me some credence with the coaches. Academically, he had these athletic players that are now qualifying and meeting NCAA 
requirements to get in our school, of course, while we're in the area, not only will we go to Skyline, we're going to come down to McClymouth High School, which later on, we're, me and Dell Networks become friends. We're going to go over to Oakland Tech and find Marshawn Lynch mm-hmm. and Joshua Johnson. I'm going to go over to Fremont High School. I'm going to go over to Castlemine. So all the, I mean, Denny, which was a friend of mine. Yeah, I remember him. Fremont and Castlemine. So it became a culture for us to say, not only do we have good players just like they have, at Skyline or Pittsburgh or De La Salle, our kids academically can qualify also. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything, but I felt like I was way ahead of that and I was in the forefront of that. And once you're doing that, now you got little kids like Marshawn Lynch that was watching this coming to our camps. You got a young man that was seven, eight years old by the name of Marcus Peters watching his dad and his uncle, what you call him, your uncle. So, diligently do this so now it's part of his that's my i can foresee where i'm trying to go with this seven eight years later i go to university of washington now my first round draft pick all these things were aligned that way and then during that time that's when i met namdi asamoah which was at cal he comes from cal on the bus catching the bus to train with me at mcclimate's high school he first round draft. That's one of the great, great stories. Is yeah. Namdi Asnawa in college was honorable mention All Pac Ten, yes. not first team. No, he was projected mention. to be a fifth rounder. Yes, sir. And they said, okay, well, you got to train for the combine. So these are the people that you recommend. And Namdi says, nope, nope, I'm sticking with Zoe. Yes. And he becomes a first round pick. And Al Davis falls in love with him. And look at the career he had. And it was it was a blessing. Once again, it was, you do good by people. I met Namdi when he was a freshman. Uh, I read about him. He was a, a all American and all that. I remember telling him, "Oh, you're the guy they're talking about." And I was just so blunt with him because he knew Atari Callen, which uh, uh, yeah, uh, Atari Callen. They were roommates. He kept saying, "Who is this Zoe guy?" Everybody keep talking about this Zoe. Who is this? And I, we met, and I met him. Like, well, who are you? You know. So I said, if you serious about it, catch the forty bus, meet me downtown Oakland. I'll pick you up, and I'll show you a real workout. Well, he did it. Called me from a payphone. He said, I'm here. I pick him up. I take him to McClymouth High School, and he's looking like, what is this? And I'm like, hey, this is what we're gonna work out. If you serious, meet me for the next month because it was on his break, and we'll work out. And he didn't miss a day. This was his sophomore year. So when he became a senior, and it was time for him to train for the NFL Combine, he stuck with me. We trained at McClymouth High School and the downtown Oakland YMCA. And he went from fifth round to first round, got drafted by the Raiders. So all this is right under the nose of Marcus Peters and all these other young men. They see this. Courtney Anderson, San Jose State guy, the year after that I trained him, he gets drafted by the Raiders. So back-to-back, two guys that they see me train right here at home with the Raiders, and it kind of gave me some validity in, in that in that world, and then on top of it, I'm getting guy. I'm getting guys just getting scholarships as well. So that's when I start giving the camps and all those different things. So now everyone's giving camp, but that was the birth of the football camp. So you just have a lot of different things that I felt like put my brand out there. It goes back to my MC Hammer days yeah. of having a brand, using that brand to promote not only yourself but to promote something positive coming out of west oakland i wanted people to feel comfortable with recruiting young men out of west oakland and in 2005 06 year we had nine division one players which included three army all americans we had three players in the top 50 in the country that had never been done and on top of it 
you got the SEC, the ACC, all these schools that never would even come close out here. They're right here in Oakland recruiting our players. So I just felt like it opened the door and it gave awareness to Oakland. And, and a lot of that had to do with not just winning and losing for me, but teaching kids how to change their lives by using sports, which is a tool of education. Yeah. And that's why it all started. Let me ask you a little bit about on-the-field success because – I remember when I was covering high school sports in Oakland, it felt like the most important thing was, number one, just getting the athletes on your campus eligible, mm-hmm. getting them engaged, getting them uh, buying into the team, and because there was so much talent. But for you as a coach, you want to make yourself better. Going from just, I've got the best athletes and I've got them eligible, versus I can out-scheme you now. Then I'm going to break down the X's and O's, so mm-hmm. I'm not just going to beat you with athletes, but I'm going to out-scheme you. Well, that's important. I mean... I think that's the thing that used to make me the uh, upset me the most because I coached football, then I coached track, and then I had my summer track team, which we would travel into the Junior Olympics. And I went year-round with this, and I went really, really hard. I remember Junior Adams and John Rushing, which Rushing is at Arizona now. Junior Adams is a new wide receiver coach at University of Washington. They told me I should go to the – to the coaches convention the fca coaches convention and i went for the first time and that's when i seen how the national coaches convention able you to educate yourself and learn not only people but the x and o piece and surround yourself with people that can help you be better and do what i would consider professional development into being better at your craft and i would spend money out my pocket and fly across the country and there's six thousand coaches there and maybe i want to say and i'm exaggerating maybe 200 a high school everybody else was college guys and at that time i was the only one from oakland doing that now all the oakland coaches do it which is great but at that time i wanted to make sure that not only was I a good coach as far as getting the talent, but am I enhancing the talent? Am I making people better when they came in, when they came out? Ishman Anderson, my fullback, got a full scholarship to UC Davis. Who gets scholarships for fullbacks? Mm-hmm. This was in 05. This kid had never played football. He, hadn't, he was too heavy to play Pop Warner football. He walked to my office and said, hey, I want to play football. I said, okay, we'll figure it out. He plays freshman year on the line. Sophomore year, I put him on varsity. He's my starting fullback. Three-year starter. He gets a full scholarship from UC Davis. And now, right now, he graduated from UC Davis, got his master's from UCLA. He's working on his doctorate. <laughs> this is the same young man that had never played football, but we used the football piece to teach him how to educate himself. But in order to do that, I have to be crafty within knowing what I'm doing. I can't just roll out a ball and say, go get them. No, there's some schematic things that go with it. I end up being, um, when I went to Contra Costa Junior College, I remember going to speak on the 3-3 stack defense, which is, I remember Mike Leach telling me then when I spoke at his coach's clinic, like, this guy gets it, you know, because I was talking about the schematic piece of their defense, which we was number one in the state in defense, and he was just like, man, I never heard nobody with a presentation like that. And that's me speaking on things that schematically that I felt I was taught and I wanted to teach others. And there's never enough room in the game to not learn. 
Because if college coaches and professional coaches are doing professional development, to me, it's, it should be automatic. Like, I've already been to the convention. This Friday, I'll be in Burlingame at the Glazier Clinic. And um, end of the month, our whole staff, we're going to the Max Miller Clinic of Champions in Reno. So it's never too much to keep learning the game. You always want to learn the game. And I'm constantly, even at 50 years old, I'm educating myself and learning football. And I want to be a better coach. Part of the showmanship of Alonzo Carter that was always really fun for me over the years, either watching in person or reading about after I uh, moved on to do other things with my life, um, dressing in orange and black army oh, fatigues yes. on game day, uh, <laughs> wearing a combat helmet to a game, yes. uh, arriving on the back of a motorcycle before yes. a game against Crenshaw High School. I needed that. They had beat us. We hadn't beat them, and they beat us a year before, and I was like, we got them at home. It was our best season. And, uh, we went 11-1 that year. We had just lost to Dorsey of L.A. And I was like, how do we? How do I get the morale of my team up? And at that time, once again, the MC Hammer piece of me, never I never talked about it. So I came up with this great idea. Me and um, uh, the, the RTC Sergeant Major, he had told me, hey, I'm going to let you wear the, I'm gonna give you the name with Carter and all the different medallions and stuff to go on and give you the boots and all that so i ordered an orange and black army fatigue outfit no one knew i was going to do it and my good friend uh ronald muhammad he said come on i got my harley motorcycle you're gonna ride out with me i'm gonna roll you out to mc hammer's music i'm like hey let's do it you know no one knows i'm gonna do it i have no idea i'm gonna do it the first time i wore the fatigues which was a year before it was in the the last game of the season in the mud, storming rain, playing against Marshawn Lynch and Joshua Johnson at Oakland Tech against McClymouth for the playoff, and they beat us. And I remember them teasing me, going, "This what you got to do to get your guys fired up to play." I'm like, "Hey, whatever." I got that picture across the street too. I can, it shows me frowned up. So I said, "Okay, I'm not wearing that again." So I saved that outfit to the next year, and it was the Crenshaw guy. So this time, I'm taking it to a different level. I'm coming out on the motorcycle. And so when we come riding out on the motorcycle, you can just you can just see the morale of the, the, of the players and everybody in the stands. They just went crazy. And we ended up beating Crenshaw 14-8, and that was which Crenshaw beat Dorsey. So they was L.A. City champions. We were Oakland City champions. And since we beat them, I told them we city best city school in the state of California. <laughs> we didn't have a state championship back then, so it was more bragging rights. But it was a great feeling to be able to use your entertainment piece to get people fired up, to get people excited. I remember Mark Helfrich, which he's the offensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears. Now, he was with Arizona State. He was just blown away with my outfit, like, wow, So He still tells people. So when I would go to different colleges, uh, Mike Bradison was at UNLV. All these different coaches would be, Tell them about the army fatigue. I was like, what's the big deal? You know, just normal stuff for me. But everyone still talks about that. And it was just me having fun, wearing my school colors. Did the administration it. ever get mad or say anything about it? They loved it. Okay. They loved it. Uh, my athletic director, Al Claiborne, he loved it. Everybody, everyone told me, you know, one, I was school pride. That was the biggest thing. And um, I did it at Contra Costa also. I had a blue and black one, which we ended up winning championship there too when I was at junior college. But I just wanted to always keep that one in uh, in my back pocket when I felt like I needed my kids to see that I'm a person before I'm a coach. Because sometimes that's 
we as coaches, that's what get lost. They forget we're people first, and we fathers. Yeah, you know, we're we're regular people. We like having fun too. The game is so intense and so physical. You gotta find some fun in it. That's what I love about Coach Brennan. He makes it fun. So that viral video, that was just us having fun. Yeah, that was after practice, us dancing around having fun. So that's always been part of me. Just be myself. I never try to go outside of who I am. To some people, they're surprised. Even you, like you said, you didn't even know. Right. I don't talk about it. But when it comes out, I let it all come out. What was harder, leaving McClyman's, your school, to go to Berkeley High or leaving Berkeley High and going to Contra Costa College? Oh, easy. Uh, leaving McClyman's, going to Berkeley. Um, when you graduate from a high school, you're from a community, and they both were hard, but I mean, I went to McClyman's. I graduated in 1986. I started my coaching career there in 1994. And to leave something that was special and endeared to you, because that was a last place football team mm-hmm. that I started. And when we won, you finally beat Skyline. Like beat you Skyline did all. We won three out of five. I won three Silver Bowl championships. Won four Oakland section championships. So when you do that, and then you're kind of had a career crossing uh, where you're trying to figure out what you want to do and you're given an opportunity to go to a bigger school and part of my motivation was people saying that I couldn't do it because they felt like which I didn't realize so I got to the North Coast section a lot of people look down on Oakland section oh yeah they never gave it its credence me I'm winning the Silver Bowl championship I'm holding the trophy up I'm feeling great Well, that's somebody that probably got a North Coast section playoff game that night. Like, that's not real. You know, so you never really got the credibility. So once I said, okay, if I can go over here and do the same thing, then they got to give me my respect. So I took Berkeley High from last place to first place in the three years that I was there. But it was hard leaving something that was special to you because I wasn't just leaving football. I felt like I was leaving my community. And I remember my brother, Charlie Griffin, um, God rest his soul, my little brother. He was the one that kind of pushed me over the hump. Him and my good friends, Patrick Henderson, senior, which I coached his son, Patrick Henderson, junior, which went to Oregon State. Now he's the head coach of Contra Costa College. He gave me my blessing to do it. And my good friend, Desmond Gums, which is now the head coach of Stella Prep High School, they had my back the whole time. And they were just like, I think it's time for you to make a change. And I think people will respect you in the long run. They might not understand it in the beginning, but they'll respect you in the long run. And what my family and my closest friends behind me, and including uh, Michael Peters, telling me, hey, man, you got to do what you got to do. And I, I think that was him and Eddie Turner because their sons were junior, juniors on that team. Brent Turner and Michael Peters, Jr. They were juniors on that team, and I left them their senior year. They kind of said, hey, you got to do what's best for you and your family. And when I did it, a lot of people don't know this. I was miserable for my first two months at Berkeley High. I cried like a baby. Why is that? Because you're it's so liberal in Berkeley. Everything is so wide open. It's 3,000 students. McClymouth has, at that time, 500 students. Everything is so wide open. And you got seven vice principals. <laughs> you got 11 counselors. I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, so I'm used to f- small aiding, helping, being the first person in the family to go to college type environment. Where at Berkeley, 
some of them students, not the athletes, but some of the students, well, we're going to go to college whether I play sports or not. So I think what made it different was I felt like uh, people took things for granted. People were getting dropped off in BMWs and Lexus and Mercedes Benzes where you got kids in climbers, they're walking to school or they're on the bus or the bar. So it just I felt like they took a lot of things for granted and it, it made me somewhat sick to my stomach that people were taking this opportunity for granted. And I didn't enjoy my first couple of months, but I found my way of putting my stamp on it and getting the parent support and the boosters behind me because they appreciated that one nugget that was missing, which was the NCAA piece. So I did seminars. I had a room full of 12 counselors teaching them about clearinghouse requirements because they didn't know. So the vice principals appreciated me. The principals appreciated me. I would have 50, 60 parents at a parent meeting where the McClymans is three or four. You know, so it was just, it was a different way of being accepted, but I felt more appreciated because I think I was at McClymans for so long. I think people start being, that's part of the expectations. Oh, well, that's Zoe. He's supposed to do that. Yeah. And I think after a while, you're human. You know, you feel like, hey, man, can I be told good job or way to go or that's great for the kids. Not from the families because the families always appreciate it. From, from, from administration, at toward, towards the end, the administration at McClymouth High School could not see where I was trying to do and where I was trying to go and continuing to use the athletics to promote academics. Everybody's big on academics. Well, uh, newsflash, you can't get a scholarship without academics. You can't get a scholarship without SAT or ACT scores. So if you know how to blend that world, then great. Berkeley High, they appreciated that. Yeah. They, they they abled me to say, oh, well, thank you. We appre- What do you need to promote this? Where at McClymans, it was, from an administrative standpoint, it was, became pulling teeth and it took the the joy of it from me. So going into a new challenge, it was great. But also I miss being, because I'm born and raised in West Oakland. Yeah. And I just missed my community. And I miss being around those people. So that's what made it hard for me. And then you go to Contra Costa College. And you took over another team that was in last place. Mm-hmm. And you took them to great heights where they're winning conferences and they're winning titles and they're yes. winning postseason games. Yes. Where did junior college fit into this overall philosophy of wanting to help people before you before you answer this the one thing that i remember also about all the scholarships that you helped uh, high school kids get is that the day after letter of intent day every year i forget his name the laney coach would call me up and he would air me out for 10 or 15 yep. minutes every year because he said all these kids they do a big party in a press conference but how many of them are even going to make it on campus how many of them are going to graduate all these kids should be going to laney which was every year on on the nose about nine a.m. or so he'd give me a call and air me out for fifteen minutes. Which for me was frustrating because I remember, and I love Stan Peters. I think he's one of the greatest coaches to ever coach junior college. But I remember him speaking at one of my clinics. I had him as a guest speaker, and that very thing you said, he said at one of my clinics, and I'm like, whoa, where that come from? I never. I, I walked away feeling like I never thought I would see the day that I would have to apologize for helping young men go into college. I never thought I would see that day. You don't know what a person's home situation is. Some of them players did need junior college. But if I have a chance to take a young man out of West Oakland and let him go to 
Central Methodist in Missouri or whatever it is to for one year of his life to get on an airplane, which I never rode on an airplane until I was 18 years old, to leave West Oakland. If I can be that person. Have a place where there's food every day ready. Then I am not going to apologize for that. And I did I. It took me a, now when I once I start coaching junior college, I kind of understood where he was coming from, but he was so way off with understanding the purpose. You're changing somebody's life. You're opening them to something that they've never seen. I went to Cal State Hayward. True story. I had never been past Bayfair Mall 17 years of my life. So when I drive on in the car that night, stressed out with my good friend Benny Nelson, talking about joining the Army or the Navy or the Marines, because I got a kid on the way, we pull up. We at Warren Hall parking lot, parked, looking over the city. I mean, the city. I'm like, hey, where are we? And he's like, we in Hayward. You ain't never been here before. No. So that's what made me apply to Cal State Hayward because I'm from that Oakland. felt like it was a long ways away. Well, I never went home. For for people who are not from the Bay Area, West <laughs> Oakland to Hayward is maybe thirty minutes. That's it, and I never seen Hayward. So when you have a chance to change a young man's life and send him to college to play college football, no disrespect to Laney College, which is right downtown by the lake, yeah, that you've been seeing your whole life. You don't apologize for it. You send them. So that's a whole different story. But when I got to Contra Costa, uh, I turned that job down. John Wade, which which is the current athletic director. John Wayne? Wade. Wade. John Wade. Okay. He is the main and only reason why I took the job because he offered me the job first. And I said, no, thank you. I don't want to coach junior college. That was, that's not why I coach. I'm five. I was in my third year at Berkeley High. My fourth year, I felt, was going to be our biggest year because we had won 10 games that year. We made it to the playoffs. I had a real good junior class. I was excited about the possibility of playing De La Salle. That year, we beat Pitt, so I was just real excited about You wanted possibly. to beat De La Salle. Yeah, I wanted to play. De- well, I have so much respect for Coach Lattisor. Yeah, he's one yeah of I didn't my, mean that negative. I just yeah. He's one of my mentors. He told me... Um, I'm happy. I remember him coming to Berkeley High, exchanging film. He said, I'm happy you're here, but I'm not glad you're here. I'm like, well, what you, what you mean? He said, because I know if you do what I know you did at McClymouth, we're going to end up crossing paths. Because he just had that much respect for me, and I had, and vice versa, I had that much respect for him. And Coach Ladd, me and him talk all the time. We got some Dallas South players currently on our roster here. And I just shout out to Coach Allen Ball, Coach Aliotti, Coach Edison, Coach Lattisor, those guys have done it, man, and you you got to yeah. respect what they're such done. class acts too. So um, I got to Berkeley High, and I wanted to be in the NCS championship game, playing them wherever. At that time, sometimes at the Coliseum, I didn't care where it was. I just wanted to climb up that ladder and say I did that. Now I don't know if I was going to win, but at least get a chance to play. <laughs> but just to do that, that was that's another feather in my hat. Well, John Wade comes and. He kind of blows all that up in a good way, and he's – I'm thinking he Joe Wade, which was the running back coach at Fresno State at the time. I know Joe Wade, and he's a five foot seven guy that I thought that when the school called said, Joe Wade is here to see you. Well, they said, John Wade is here to see you. So they called me on my cell phone. I'm around the corner with my wife getting these glasses. First time I realized I had to wear glasses, so I'm getting fitted for some glasses. And in comes this six foot six guy. And he walks in, he's like, how you doing? He got a deep voice, John Wade. I'm like, 
John Wade? I thought they said Joe Wade. I'm like, well, this ain't no Joe Wade, you know. And he gives me his business card, and it says, Contra Costa College Athletic Director. I'm like, oh, you here to talk to my players. Because I guess I'm thinking, oh, y'all don't have a coach. So the AD is here to recruit my players. He said, no, I'm not here to talk to you about no players. I'm here to talk to you about you. And I'm like, talk to me about what? He said, well, I've been following you. And he was real impressive because he knew my whole background. He went all the way back to my climbers, And he was really detailed about what he knew about me. He said, I wanted to talk to you about the possibility of you becoming our head football coach. And before he even get it out of his mouth, I said, no. So I'm not interested. And my wife snatched the card. <laughs> Roselle, I love her. She snatches the card. Well, what? What is? What? We're listening. Well, who is we? You already said I don't have enough time. Now we talk about some college stuff. So he gives his whole spiel, and it was one thing that caught my attention that made me interested. He said, "I love the work you've done with saving kids' lives in Oakland. I love the work you're currently doing with saving kids' lives in Berkeley." But how about it if you can save kids' lives still in Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, Vallejo? So he started naming all these variables of you still can do that, but now it's on a wider spectrum. Because now you're getting the players that did not get the scholarship, that do not think they're Division One players, that did not think they can graduate from college. You can change this all in one swoop. And I was like, hmm. That's something to think about. So I still, at that time, I told him, well, I don't have my degree. And he's like, well, I want you to go back to school. And I end up taking my degree after all these years. How close were you? I was, I was, I remember I left MC Hammer. I was a junior in school. Right. But the catalog has changed. Totally changed. I've been gone. So he sets it up to his credit. He advises me to meet with a counselor at Contra Costa. And this is his brilliance. He says, you go back, get your your transcripts, give it to the Contra Costa College counselor. See how far are you away from getting an associate's degree. So I take my transcript. I meet with a counselor. They break it down. I needed like 12 units or so to get my associate degree from Contra Costa College. He said, once you get that degree, now transfer back to Cal State East Bay now as a junior college transfer. And now... The catalog, even though it's changed, they counted it back, and they count since we counted the courts to Contra Costa, mm-hmm. they have to count it. Now you can try to get your bachelor's degree. So he hired me. A lot of people thought I had a ma- all this because you normally have to have a master's degree to coach junior college football. I coach a junior college with associate's degree, and the beauty of how it went was I was a student for a whole year before I coached at Contra Costa. So, so was, on top of everything else that you're doing, I'm working a full time job at Berkeley. You're High, training all these guys, training, and I'm a summer student. camps and your student. I'm a student. I get my degree. I get hired the next year at Contra Costa, and I'm still cherry picking, plucking away at classes now to get my bachelor's degree while I'm coaching a college football team. And the closer I, you know, here's what's ironic. That same young man, Ishman Anderson, that I told you, the fullback, that got the scholarship to UC Davis, that got his master's from UCLA, guess who my college counselor at Cal State Hayward is? Same guy. Ishman Anderson. He's the EOPS counselor. 
He takes me on now, coach. Now it reverts. Right. You can do this. I'm like, man, I can't take all these classes. <laughs> yes, you can. Shout out to Ishmael Anderson. Ishmael Anderson takes my transcript. He breaks down my transcripts and shows me how I can get my bachelor's degree. I switched my major from accounting, which it just sound good at the time, to African American studies. I'm an ethnic studies major, and he shows me all these classes I could take online. Plus, physically drive from San Pablo to Hayward twice a week during a season. I'm taking night classes and everything else, and working a full time job. So Ishman just kept pushing me and pushing me. And pu- it took me four years to get it, but I finally got it. And the December, I remember walking the stage. Get my degree from the same college my son, Alonzo Carter, the second graduated from as well. The same field that I held him on as a one-year-old when I was playing football. Now I'm walking. That's where you graduate on the football field, now the soccer field. And I get the degree, and that December, I get a phone call from my good friend, Brent Brennan, which now is the head coach of San Jose State. And I just graduated and got my degree and he says I want you to come be part of my staff so life for me is just you're talking about a high you're talking about a full circle like this is the blessings you've helped so many people your own people are helping you and now coach Brennan which I met Back in 2000. Yeah, I was going to ask you where, where you met, met him I met coach Brennan and we laugh about this he was the wide receiver for coach at Cal Poly and he was driving through West Oakland looking for me, parked in the front. They said, a coach is here to meet you. I'm like, who's here to meet me? This tall white guy gets out the car. It's him. I'm like, hey, how you doing? I said, where you parked? He said, I'm parked in the front. Oh, no, 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 no. You better pull that car around. <laughs> so he pulls his car around. He comes to the basketball court. And we meet and we're talking. And just I tell him about the whole Oakland because he had just got hired. So I tell him where to go and all that. And we befriended each other. And he ended up getting from there coming to San Jose State and he was in charge of recruiting the Bay and we became best of friends and he left and went to Oregon State but we still kept in contact and they moved him to LA he didn't recruit the Bay anymore but we just kept in contact he was sending me holiday cards Christmas my wife and his wife he was at my wedding you know which I, when I got married MC Hammer was the officiant in my wedding and only we, fitting and of course we played some less <laughs> right. we did a little I can only imagine what the dances oh, were like was, that oh, night it was great it was great flashback for real so brendan was at my wedding so we're friends i have no idea he's coming back to san jose state he had no idea he had an idea i was getting my degree because him him and some of my other colleagues that i were friends with in the college business and so go get your degree so get your degree because it was tough they're like man finish and get your degree because if now you want to coach division one you have to have a degree so all these people I'm helping getting scholarships, now I gotta live by example. Exactly. I gotta get my own stuff. So Coach Brennan was one of the main positive catalysts in my corner. And he got hired a week later he called me and hired me and it was just and I've been here living a dream, man. This is a this is a dream for me I'm living. I don't know. 
I, I remember when, when I when I heard that you had gotten the job at San Jose State, I was so excited because I just thought, man, if anyone knows how to recruit, it's Alonzo oh, yeah. Carter. But also, if anyone knows how to coach, it's Alonzo Carter. And and let's be candid, it is not easy at San Jose State. No. The, the the budget here is so much smaller than it is anywhere else, but you're used to but working used to in that. places where there's no budget. This, this, this is bonus. I love it. I love the people here. I love the administration. I mean, uh, Marie Tuart, our athletic director, she's special. Uh, Dr. Papazian, the president of the university, she's special. You talk about some special people that are 100% behind making change. And Coach Brennan is a special person to work for. He's not only you, – you can't measure his impact just wins and losses. you got to measure his impact on the culture change. We have 53.0 students on – you know, that was the most – history of the program we've done all this during a losing season academically our gpa is the highest it's ever been um you got all the different sports that we're involved with just showing our support and getting behind them 100 percent and changing the culture and we lost games yeah but four of those games were fourth quarter games we could have very easily won including a Five overtime lost to Hawaii, which is a whole different story. But we are there. We're getting there. Uh, he has a great staff. He's a great family person. I mean, his impact on my family, I mean, I can't. Between him and MC Hammer, you know, and this strange parallel, you put them two together. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Brent, Brent and MC Hammer, what they got to do with each other? But for me, those are probably the two most impactful men in my life. And I mean that genuinely because they believe they seen something in me that would make a difference. MC Hammer seen something in this young kid from West Oakland that can make a difference on an already established multi-platinum artist to make an impact and make a change. Coach Brennan seen something in me to say, "Hey, I watched this guy. I watched him work and coach." In Oakland, in Richmond, and uh, fresh off seeing Takaris McKinley, first-round draft pick. I went to the draft, you know, with him. He got drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, played for me at Country Council College. So, he's the one who went to UCLA. Yes. After, after, yeah, yeah. Everybody always say UCLA. Yes, but one year at Country Council College, right? With myself, and when you get to see that stuff, and you sharing it with someone that's your friend. And your business partner, which is Coach Brennan, is your boss or whatever you want to call it. Right. It's different, man. It's special. When he telling you, hey, it's Halloween. Get out the office. It's 4 o'clock. Go take your daughter Christmas tree. I mean, uh, trick-or-treating. What? Well, Coach, just go. I don't want you to catch traffic because he know I got to drive yeah. to Oakland and go pick my daughter up. I mean, those are the little things people don't see about this man. This man is special. I'm glad to be part of his staff. We're going to make a difference. Uh, we are our East Bay signees. We had seven this year. Um, you'll see even last year. If you go back and look at our roster, just the, the as we call it, Shield Bay. We always, me and Coach Fred Judici, we always talk about that. Anything in the Bay Area will be in on it. We Because that was one of the biggest pet peeves. People would say, well, San Jose State wasn't getting the East Bay guys or they wasn't getting players to stay home. Well, they can't say that anymore. Because if there's a player in the East Bay, we've either offered him or we, we got him either coming here. Or if he didn't come here, it wasn't because he was overlooked. Because we're digging deep. We want to make sure that the barrier players are a priority and make sure that we 
make an impact on branding San Jose State. When you see Spartan Up or you see Shield the Bay, that's not an accident. All that stuff is part of our brand, and it goes back to once again the, the entertainment background. Yeah. Brendan understands it. He gets it. He understands the power of social media. Our social media. If you look at ours, I mean, you you. I've seen you do some stuff in New Mexico. So. Yeah. Night and day. You look at our stuff and you look at theirs and everyone's kind of like, man, you guys are everywhere. Because a lot of it has to do with Cam Rafford and Coach Brennan. And then our Beyond Football program mm-hmm. went to Brooke Blaine. She does that. We got stuff doing. We do tours with Apple and Facebook and Google and all these different things that we're doing in our community. Community service, being mentors, working with the YMCA, the YWCA, all these different things we're doing as a football program. Under his guidance, you know, these are this was his vision. Get us out into the community, connecting us with Silicon Valley, getting involved with everything that's close or in the vicinity of San Jose State, and just having a presence not only off campus but on campus as well. You know, just bringing the whole campus together. And I just think the leadership from the administration. It's the key to that. We have a very supportive administrative team, and we just really appreciate what they do to make us be successful, to help the program grow. And I'm just part of it, and I'm just blessed really to be here. Well, I think for people who are listening to this, whether they knew you before or didn't know anything about you, I think that they've probably realized uh, your your energy and how contagious that is okay. and your positive uh, I- impact and just your, uh, your enthusiasm toward life. So um, I'm always going to be rooting for you. Yes. Before I let you go, I want to um, – because I am mostly a baseball guy, I do want to ask you um, a question about baseball. Oakland, Frank Robinson, Veda Penson, Kurt Flood, Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart, Lloyd Mosby, more recently, Jimmy Rollins, Dontrell Willis, although they are kind of Alameda slash Oakland. Mm-hmm. Why don't more African Americans currently in Oakland play baseball? Why are the numbers dropping, and what can baseball do to change this? I think, you know, baseball... Is viewed primarily. It's, 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 <laughs> I love baseball. I, love, I, mean, I grew up when Billy Martin was when when Billy Ball was mm-hmm. in his heyday with Ricky Henderson, and Dwayne Murphy, and uh, Tony Armas, and all those guys. I was right there. I was. A, I loved the Oakland A's. I was too too young to remember Reggie Jackson then, but I just know that some people view it is now. It's just the game is so slow, and it, it's not. It's not something that once you get to high school I think the cool factor for some of these players it wears off and then the social media piece if you look at what's going on with social media the instant gratification of me 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 a lot of that's affiliated with AAU basketball uh, 7 on 7 which is year round with football so if I'm a football slash baseball guy or a football slash basketball guy, that's spring, which normally is supposed to be baseball or track because track suffering also. Yep. Those two sports get hit in the head by the Easter tournament for the basketball team or the 7-on-7 traveling team that's going to all these spring practices. And, I, and I'm and i totally behind it. I don't have nothing against the 7-on-7 football or the AAU basketball, but it's becoming so competitive and with social media glorifying so much stuff that these guys do for good reasons, 
who gets lost in the shuffle? Baseball and track. Yeah. You know, because I'm just not participating because I'm on the traveling team with so-and-so, so-and-so. So I can't play for my school baseball team or I can't play for my school track team. And I think it's me. I'm a football track guy, so I can imagine my struggle coaching high school right now. I would be miserable because I was my own head football coach and my own track coach. So, I mean, Coach Brendan Lass, how he used to say he would come to practice and he would see me standing in the middle of the field pointing and orchestrating all these practices. I'm like, dude, who, who's your help? I'm not right now. Hold on a minute. I got to, I got to, hey, y'all got three more. So, he'd see me doing all this yelling and it, it was just, that's gone, you know, and it's just tough because we all want to get to that next level. But a lot of people don't know these numbers. Only 6.9% of players in the country are going to get FBS or FCS scholarships in football. Then if you just break it down to FBS, it reduces to 3%. So 3% of the people in the country are going to get an FBS scholarship. 6.9% of people in the country are going to get an FBS or FCS scholarship. That's a very small number. And that's football. That's just football. And that's football. And yeah. when it comes to baseball, one of the things that I think hurts, I don't know the exact number, I think it's 12 and a half scholarships that baseball that's gets. That's a smaller number. And you got a team of anywhere from 25 to 30, and you got 12 and a half scholarships, so you're giving up half and quarter and eighth scholarships based on... Yes. You, you can't dangle this, hey, you can go get a scholarship to play baseball. Best case scenario, you're going to get a half scholarship. You're going to get a quarter scholarship. I mean, just even here, our baseball team is great. I love the coach. Uh, I love the players. They real. We support them. They support us, and they, it's just not getting the our softball team. They, they our softball teams conference champions and makes it to the playoffs and all that. But no one really talks about it. So yeah. it's just it's tough because baseball has kind of lost its luster a little bit because I think in high school the spring sport emphasis is on. AAU basketball and the traveling 707 teams. I think it's taken away from that. Yeah, it's, it's something that baseball has to figure out because it's become very white. And and then the more that they recruit from Venezuela and the Dominican, as they yeah. should, because there's extremely talented players there, and that's all they play. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the predominant sport that they play. And so, I mean... There's going to be more and more Kyler Murrays who, who, yeah, who, who right. decide that, that they're going to play that, football. And there's, that's a big hit. Yeah. That was a major hit because yeah. we finally had an African-American player that was real good in baseball, pretty special. First-round pick. First-round pick, and he's like, ah, I'm going to play football. Yeah. And nothing against him. you know. I think he's a phenomenal talent. But if I'm a baseball guy, I'm like, oh. you know. So it's tough because baseball players are, I mean, what's crazy, if you look at the average person's youth pictures, he probably played baseball. Yeah. You go to someone's house, they got baseball pictures of them playing youth baseball. And then somewhere between middle school and high school, they just stopped playing. Yeah, when I was at the Tribune in the summertime, I would write a lot of stories about youth baseball teams. And the kids from Oakland playing Babe yes. Ruth, they're winning tournaments they left and right. They, they are crushing it. opponents across <laughs> the Western Hemisphere. Yes, they love it. And then they get to high school, and then it's yeah, baseball, and it's all about football and basketball. It's not the cool thing, and, you know, I, I wish change in it, and I hope, you know, uh, that some type of way that we, uh, especially in African-American community, can get ourselves more involved with baseball. I don't know the total answer, but maybe it would take more of those people 
that are in the forefront and visually in their eyes that can give stuff to kind of bring that back. You know, like the Ricky Hendersons and Dontrell Willis's people like that, uh, uh, you know, to just have a major impact. And when you have a voice, like I told you, think back to my story. I told you Namdi was training at McClymus while he was at Cal. Then when he trains for the draft, he's at McClymus High School. Well, like I told you, you got Marshawn Lynch, Marcus Peters, Javid Best. You got all these young men. They see that. They were watching that. Oh, that's the blueprint. That's how you do it. So it's right under their nose. Yeah. So Jimmy know. Rollins always said what an influence Ricky Henderson was on him, right? And, you know, without Ricky, you know, I, I don't know if Jimmy becomes the, the player that he became. You know, he always talks about how Ricky was his guy. Look at Bip Roberts, Joe Morgan. Yeah, Bip. I mean, you love got, me, Bip. You just got great guys. Yeah. And he's, he's, you know, baseball, I love it. I, I love watching baseball. And I just, you know, I wish the best for it. And hopefully it gets back, you know, where it needs to be. All right, Zoe. I've taken up way too much of your time, but uh, this is awesome. Um, I'm I'm always rooting for you. Appreciate you. And uh, thanks again for your time. And uh, let's let's not wait 18 years let's to see go. each other again. Yeah, Spartan up. Let's go, brother. <laughs> That's right. Alonzo Carter, and this is usually life around the seams, but it's life around the laces this time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs>